You're listening to Film School, broadcasting every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time at KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, and on the web at KUCI.org slash filmschool. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. Offered exclusive and unparalleled access to the situation on the ground inside Darfur, Peabody award-winning filmmaker Paul Friedman created Sand and Sorrow, a documentary about the events that led to the rise of that region's Arab-dominated government's willingness to kill and displace its own indigenous African people and the international community's legacy of failure to respond to the genocide carried out there. Paul Friedman, welcome to Film School. Thank you. How are you today? Can you hear me okay? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Are you off the subway? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I am, actually. I'm in New York. We just had a... Uh, we just had a screening last night in Washington, D.C. with HBO, and I'm uh, to have a meeting in New York today, so I took the train. All right, very just, good. Uh, now I'm no longer subterranean. Here I am. <laughs> oh, there uh, you excellent. Go. Uh, how did the uh, the screening go in uh, D.C. last night? It was fantastic. Oh. It was uh, it was great to see how a company such as HBO, who, you know, you think of this big gargantuan machine that just churns out material, how they have gotten behind my documentary not just as programming, but they've really gotten behind the cause. And they are not only showing it Thursday night premiering on HBO, but they're encouraging uh, these constituency groups. And you can go to their website and see, all, uh, see about it. It's, yes. They're having house parties around the country. They're having a podcast uh, chat broadcast phone. I don't even understand the technology, but immediately following the uh, broadcast Thursday night, Nick Kristoff, Samantha Power, right. and John Prendergast will be available to answer questions. And it should, it should be a great evening of... Uh, advocacy and uh, awareness. Can you uh, explain a little bit about uh, who Nick Kristoff is? Those three um, are sort of the triumvirate of, uh, of the documentary. Um, Nick Kristoff, he's one of my heroes. He's an award-winning columnist for the New York Times. He's a well-known guy. I'm in New York right now, and he's, uh, everybody knows him here. Yeah. He's won several Pulitzer Prizes. He covered uh, Tiananmen Square, won a Pulitzer there, and he won a Pulitzer Prize, uh, I think, two years ago for his coverage of Darfur. He was the first real well-known big city paper guy to, to sort of break the story, whereas a lot of columnists will cover one thing and then, you know, move on to the next. Uh, Nick's been relentless in going back to Darfur himself. He's probably been seven or eight times. He's been way in country and, uh, you know, seen some hairy things. And he has just been relentless in reporting this and, and challenging the administration, uh, the European Union, uh, and all of us to uh, not be bystanders on this. I really hopefully give him a well, he's already got a huge voice, but hopefully I, I, I uh, give him more of a voice in the film. Uh, Samantha's a, uh, Samantha Power, is a, uh, she wrote the book called Problems from Hell, uh, America and Genocide in the 20th Century. Uh, she won a Pulitzer Prize for that. She is as sharp as a knife, professor at Harvard Kennedy School of Government. She talks about the legacy of failure of all of us being bystanders to genocide and how we should be upstanders. Um, yes. And John Prendergast has worked in the region for probably 25 years. He's worked in the White House. He is a very articulate voice on, on policy. These three people, uh, if you've seen the film, they're not only interesting to listen to, but they're very inspiring. Yes, uh, they, were, they were wonderful in the film, and, and 
Crystal's reporting has been remarkable. They're available on a uh, online, I guess, after the broadcast. I don't understand the technology, how uh-huh. HBO is doing this, but immediately following the broadcast, it'll be some sort of art card that comes up after the film that gives everybody instructions on how to either call in or log in. I will be moderating this discussion, and, uh-huh. and Nick and Samantha and John will be available live on the phone. They'll first uh, make a couple of points of action, uh, what we can do that evening, who we can call, who we can write, who we can email. And then they're going to spend about about an hour taking questions from people all over the country who are going to be calling in. Excellent. Um, yeah. So far, I think, uh, last count, there were, I think, I think, 75 schools around the country were having house parties. Hopefully there will be many more before Thursday. We're well, speaking with Paul Friedman, the director of Sand and Sorrow. I just want to know how you got into this film. What, what uh, brought you into uh, a film about Darfur? Great question. I started off as a, a in the commercial business, and I, you know, I've uh, chased the sort of the, the the fun, fancy life of a commercial editor and director, and I, I, I had some success. And I Na- made name a commercial. And, oh, I worked on Nike and Budweiser. Oh, and really? Uh-huh. Southwest Airlines, and I did a lot of stuff for about ten years. And then um, 2001 changed so many people. 9/11. Uh, yes. the, the business sort of went dead for a while, and. And I had an opportunity to, to, to edit, that was my background, initial background, edit uh, some long-form documentaries that were focused on human rights. I did one on uh, the Cambodian genocide, on North Korean concentration camps, uh, on Iraq and the bombing of the, uh, the gassing of the Kurds. Uh, these were History Channel, Discovery Channel pieces. They were interesting. I, I hope I fancy myself a compassionate guy by nature, but these really sort of piqued me. And in 2004, I heard about a, uh, a project that was, that was getting going with the History Channel through Bill Brummel Productions, a friend of mine. I, I knew they were going to probably come to me and ask me to cut it, but I went to them first and said, please let me make this. So I was off pretty soon to Rwanda, and I realized that once I got there that I uh, had, had a lot of shame, personal oh. shame. I re- distinctly remember 1994 sitting at the same kitchen table I still sit at to this day, having coffee with my wife. and and looking at the L.A. Times and reading that story about the two presidents that were shot down over uh, Kigali, uh, the president of Rwanda, the president of Burundi, and how it ignited the, the catastrophe there. And I remember, you know, the next day there was another little story. These are all, of course, buried on page 8, you know, yeah. a couple of paragraphs. And, and then the next day there might have been a couple of pictures and maybe a blurb on CNN. And I was just thinking to myself, you know, this is terrible. What's happening over there? And then I said, please pass the sports section. <laughs> and yeah, um, yeah. like all of us. Yeah. And... But when I got to Rwanda and I started sitting down and really getting into what happened there and the history of the research, talking to the people, and it was only 10 years later. This was a 10-year anniversary. It is still palpable there. It's like walking into an open wound. Yeah. And when you walk through a genocide site and you, and you step on a, the jawbone of a 4-year-old child and you see women's handbags strewn around and rib bones and skulls, I mean, it rocked my world. I realized that I had shame from... Uh, from looking away at what happened, because I realized as I was speaking to these people that they're just like me, you know. But for birthright, I could have been a Rwandan. They want the same things for their children that I want for mine. They want their kids to get an education. They want their kids to not get sick. I realized how small this world is and how, um, how close to that, that situation we could be. I don't see us as an international community getting, getting along any better with each other. In fact, I think it might be getting worse. The world's getting smaller, and I, you know, I, I, I guess by the time I was done with the Wanda project, I had really, um, really uh, changed, really fundamentally changed inside. At that time, there were just whispers coming out of the Sudan about what was going on. Well, this is um, mid-2004, late-2004. And, in fact, some of the people I talked to in my Rwanda film, like Samantha Powers, were 
literally asking me between questions in the interview, have you heard about Darfur? You know, they're saying, yeah. it's, it's happening again. When I finished that project, I looked at my wife and I said, you know, we gotta, I got to do this. We got to do this. And she said, I don't know how we're going to do it, but let's, let's do it. All right. And whereas the uh, Rwanda project was, was funded by the History Channel, I, had, uh, I took on this Darfur project all on my own. Um, with the generous uh, donations of some friends and some organizations, we were able to make the first couple of trips to Africa. Uh, but otherwise, it was um, pretty much a credit card deal. Mm-hmm. And uh, to, to all you film students, be careful <laughs> when you start getting your credit card out on a film. Well, at what point did, did HBO step up? Was that a fairly recent development? Yeah, HBO stepped up after the film was finished. Okay. It was, uh, we, we took it to the Cannes Film Market, and uh, it had a couple of screenings there. And while I was there... Um, HBO had called the number on the website, sanitsaro.org is a website with a contact number, and they said, you know, we'd been tracking the film. Because I'd shown it a few, I, you know, I showed it at Harvard and MIT, where they couldn't get the DVD player to work, by the way. <laughs> That's got to <laughs> uh, be... Ber- I showed it at Berkeley, um, uh. Davis, a few, a bunch of schools and churches, but they, I guess they had been tracking the, the film and they wanted to see it. So I uh, sent them a copy and, and they said, you know, we really like sort of microcosmic American issues, but we'll look at it. And then they didn't call. And <laughs> PBS called and made a kind of a nice offer, and I, I sort of went through the roof with joy and said, wow, what a great deal. And, you know, <laughs> and then HBO called back a couple weeks later and said, you know, we'd like to have this. They said, you know, all we want you to do is put our logo at the head and the tail. Uh, really? the, other guys, the other guys wanted me to shorten it. And it was great. I mean, they, they just got behind it immediately, and so, I'm forever grateful. They're a class act. So PBS wanted you to shorten it? Uh, yeah, they, yeah, they asked me to uh, make it a little shorter. They had, you know, programming time, uh, yeah. programming limitations. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, it was a it was a great offer, and I was flattered. I mean, what a yeah. great what a great forum PBS is. Were HBO they thi- turned out to be the, they, they, HBO turned out to be the right place for it. Were they thinking about making it in a front line, or was this uh, completely separate for PBS? I, I, I'm not too sure. I think yeah. front line, um, from what I know about it, they or they, independent. Yeah. Pre- preconceived packages, they send people out to do them. Um, it probably would have been more of a special, uh, we, special we, presentation. We've, inter- we've interviewed a number of people who have had independent lens films done on independent that, lens, and they, they, yes. they, there's a theatrical release, and then they have their yeah, their, their, their 55 you know minute release of it. So, right. By the way, we're speaking with Paul Friedman. The film is Sand and Sorrow. It'll be premiering this Thursday on HBO. You've done a nice job of pulling a lot of different threads together. For people here in America, it, it helps, it seems to help us relate more to a film when we see Americans in it, and you've done that by bringing in a, a high school and a, a sort of a call to action on the part of these uh, these uh, seniors. I assume they're seniors at this, at this uh, high school. Actually, at the time, I think uh, the older one, Riley, was a junior, gotcha. and her younger sister uh, was an eighth grader. Oh, my goodness. Well, then I'm way off. Okay, so uh, you brought you brought. They, they look like they look like seniors. Oh, well, yeah, they did. They certainly looked old old enough to be seniors. Yeah. But they but you yeah. pulled this element in as essentially a vehicle to uh, allow people to understand how to relate to to, to this issue. Well, oh, and also the UC system here in uh, California. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was you know I could if I threw up 94 minutes of uh, Darfur. At what point does an audience or a viewer turn away? I mean, it's yeah. it's uh, it's unbearable to watch it, much less you know be there, much less having to live through it. So I decided early on that I wanted to show uh, some sort of thread of hope. There has there has to be hope. In fact, the the the, car, the art card, the Camus quote at the, the head of the yeah. film says, you know, where there is no hope, we must you know invent some. Um, but what I discovered is the first thing I shot was uh, the, the the girls in Batavia, Illinois. Was that when you talk about these things, and I learned this when I 
jumped headlong into Rwanda. When you explain what's happening in these situations and you lay it out to a young person, um, and I mean someone, you know, 16, 17 or younger, generally they have, in fact, overwhelmingly, they have the correct moral response. My kids are uh, 11, 13, and, you know, and, and, and they look at you and they say, how could a government kill a mommy and daddy and a baby? How, why? I mean, they're flabbergasted, and that, and that, guys, is the correct moral response. Yes. Right. Now you run that you run that one by us, us jaded adults, and we say, well, I can, you know, there's there's oil and Chinese, and you know, we, <laughs> we you know, we, 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 it's filtered and it's changed, and it's not the correct moral response anymore. So the kids are right, and yeah. we've sort of bungled this so many times now since Armenia that we need young people to take up this cause. And this cause has been taken up, by the way, in the United States. It's a very unique situation here of this sort of grassroots, this grassroots movement that wasn't here in Rwanda 12 years ago, but it's here now, and it's here to stay. These are people that are determined to make never again mean something. The girls, it turned out, as a matter, I was going to cut them out of the film, actually, but my composer said, uh, this was early on, he said, I'm crazy, these girls are great, we get them, and, and thank God I uh, listen yeah. to smarter people. Uh, <laughs> but th- th- it turns out that the girls do do that. They tie us in, they plug us into a, a humanity here that's special here in America. Americans are compassionate by nature, that's just who we are, we always have been. It really sort of allows us to relate to something while we're off talking about a, a, a distant land and people that we don't feel we have any connection to. Uh, but it's, uh, it, really, it really ties us in. And I think, um, and, and it's real, it's true. These girls are remarkable. And, there's, and they're just illustrative of, of thousands and thousands and thousands of young people across the country and many at UCI and the UC system who are, who are like them and have taken up this cause. Just to give the, the film some greater context, it, it does a terrific job of explaining the situation beyond the horror that is the genocide that's taking place. We get into sort of the political ramifications, this attempt to bring together the warring parties, and it lays it out in a way that it's very easy to understand what's going on, because oftentimes you find these situations, even with Rwanda, the Hutu and the Tutsis, I, to, the, to this day, I, I get a little twisted as to what was going on with who and why and all of that. This film does a very, very good job of laying it out in a way that we can understand and give it uh, some, some depth. Thank you. How did you get access to all this information? Were, were there, was there footage or anything, any difficulty in putting this together? First of all, I think that, you know, I love my job. I, what I discovered when I started working in long form and making documentaries, I... I've always loved digging into something and history and research. And so, so that's something that I never had to, like, get over when, you know, you're making a film. I'm, I am, I'm already immersed in the research for my next project, and I'm, like, on, I'm on fire. <laughs> um, it's the most exciting part of the whole thing is to really go into a place and have your guide who's in the front seat, he's a Rwandan guy, and he turns around and he goes, hey, how do you know all this stuff? <laughs> you know, um, I, 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 I love learning about this. But that said, my first cut of this thing was about three hours long. I mean, the difficult thing about explaining this, this complexity in Darfur is, is, okay, it just didn't start in 2001 when the rebels picked up arms. This took years and decades to sort of... Sort of, as Prunier says, the milk started to boil in Darfur in the yeah. 70s and the 80s. So we really needed to explain that. And but you know, they, I could have gone into incredible detail as I, I you could have in the Rwanda's dynamic as well. But I tried to really. I, that's a big compliment. Thank you to say that you know that, that there 
your Africa layperson can sort of get their head around this and not have to be scratching their head 75 minutes in and going, okay, I'm seeing all this stuff, but how did it happen again? Yeah. Research and understanding the dynamic is key in trying to tell the story. Well, and I think in, 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 that, in the furtherance of that, I think you did it, uh, the right thing when right up front you've got a representative from the Sudanese government saying, well, we've had some problems. But, hey, bud, I mean, come on. You know, it's kind of, <laughs> and I thought that, you know, this is, okay, we now know, you've told us a lot about what's going on in Darfur by just hearing him kind of hemming and hawing about the situation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and fundamentally, I think everybody should understand that when you just, when you for, for anybody just to pick up and start thinking about what's happening in Darfur. The first thing we need to understand is that the, the government, the, the people in charge over there, are criminals. They are war criminals. Right. They have committed profound human rights atrocities, and they still are to this day. That's the first thing we need to understand. Right. If we can uh, understand that, everything else seems, it, it makes sense, um, because there's just miles and mounds of evidence of stuff that implicate all these guys. At the risk of launching a long uh, explanation, I... Can you shorthand us a little bit as sure. to is this a religious? What what are the what are sort of the confluence of issues that are, we're talking about here? Religion, politics, uh, geography. What is it that what is that? What sort of the percentage of mix are we looking at here when we're talking about Darfur? Well, it's a couple of things simply, um, but uh, but m- most importantly, it's a it's a counterinsurgency. Period. Um, whereas uh, genocides passed, particularly in, in Europe, the Holocaust, uh, in Rwanda, where they were specifically targeting killing Tutsis because they were Tutsi, killing Jews because they were Jews. They're not killing these non-Arab tribes just because they're non-Arab tribes. There's ethnic tension there, yes. Um, it's an Arab-dominated government, yes. But the reason they are conducting themselves in this criminal, ethnic sweeping, cleansing, genocidal way is because it's a counterinsurgency. It just so happens that the people who are clamoring for a little bit of relief, a road, a hospital, a school in Darfur, um, are uh, the people that picked up arms. They happen to be the non-Arab people, and the government happens to be Arab. So, like they did in southern Sudan, they have just decided to brutally put down this rebellion. And this is how they do it. They did it in the south. Darfur is the same dynamic is what happened in southern Sudan. Okay. They pay Arab militias to ride in and rape and burn. They drop refrigerators, car chassis, 55-gallon drums of, of gasoline and bombs on, on villages, and they kill the base. They kill the rebel family. That's and, exactly what's happening in Darfur. And they rape the women, and they... and they, they it's just, the it's, it's, yeah. yeah, those stories are, yeah. are heartbreaking. Yeah. T- tell us how you think this cause is progressing here in the we have a, We also have a phone number and, yeah. and a website, so, so go ahead. Well, the good news, like I said, is that there is a, a, a really unique American phenomenon here of, of a constituency of a number of groups, religious groups, faith-based groups, student organizations, and a lot of people just from the general public who have really decided to make Never Again mean something. They understand that the world is, is getting smaller, that the more we look away from these things, the more our moral fiber atrophies, that the easier it will be for this to happen in our country someday when we run out of water and we run out of food and we say, all right, get the Irish, you know, <laughs> right, um, right. get the Asians, you know. They, they see this and get the no. big picture. That's the good news. There's still a huge stumbling block in making... Our government, whoever it is, whether it's a Republican government or a Democratic government, making them understand that someday there has to be a political price to pay for not responding to this 
type of yes. profound human crime. Until, until we do that, until we make someone really pay a price by not voting for them, we'll always run up against this. Unless there's something like Gerard Prunier says, unless there's a reason, that there's a threat or a benefit, you know, our government doesn't care. Yeah. Again, the good news is that there are people here who are really anxious to, to make this count. And it sounds like HBO is, is throwing the weight that they, they have behind this, and that's terrific news. Amazing, yeah. And we have a number 1-800-GENOCIDE. That's 1-800-436-6243. So there are ways in which anyone listening to this broadcast can, can get involved. And there's also the website, sandandsorrow.org. HBO, HBO has a website, uh, HBO.com, the documentaries website. You can go to their Sand and Sorrow website, and they have a link to a lot of uh, uh, places where you can go and get more information. It's a great, uh, great website. Excellent. Well, Paul Friedman, thank you so much. It's a terrific film. Thank you, Nathan. Uh, thank you, Mike. Yeah, really take appreciate you. your time. To learn more about Film School, listen to more interviews, or subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at KUCI.org slash filmschool.